Welcome to another episode of Seed Pod, an audio reflection of the communities of Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows. I'm your host, Christian Cowley. I'm joined today by co-host Jack Emberley and guest Jeff Clayton. We are pleased to acknowledge that we're broadcasting to you from the traditional lands and unceded territories of the Catesy First Nation and the Kwantlen First Nation, who have been stewards of this land and its rivers from time immemorial. We look forward to the journey of reconciliation with our First Nations family. This episode of Seed Pod is also recorded in the Seed Centre neighbourhood house, which once bore a different name, the Haini no Kai Yochien, or Kindergarten. The building was built by Japanese-Canadian pioneers who once made up about one-third of the area's population. The internment of 22,000 Japanese-Canadians in 1942 meant that this building was taken from that community, an injustice based on racist attitudes that are no longer acceptable. Between reconciliation with our First Nations family and recognizing other past injustices, we have much material on which to base new understandings of how to move forward in society. This podcast is intended to contribute to those efforts by shining a spotlight on contemporary issues that are rooted in the past. So now, it's my pleasure to bring you Part 7, the final part of our 100-year War on Salmon series. Jack, in this seventh final part of the 100-year War on Alouette Watershed Salmonids, we approach the end of the series based on an in-depth conversation between you and Jeff Clayton, recorded earlier this year in 2021. Your conversation delves into Jeff's incredible recollection of the efforts that he and other community members made to restore salmon and habitat in the Alouette watershed over a period of 70 years. It highlights 70 years of his personal experience dealing with officials and industry determined to give priority to power generation over salmon and the ecosystem. All this at a time when salmon and the entire ecosystems that depend on them are at extreme risk while power generation is benefiting from innovation in renewable energy systems. Power company, BC Hydro, and colluding government agencies, the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and the Provincial Ministry of the Environment, continue to have decimated natural salmon runs. Jack, set the scene for us as we return to your conversation with Jeff. So Christian, in this segment of the 100 Years War on Alouette Salmon, we come to a point in time when BC Hydro has prepared three option plans, options for seismic upgrades, essential for public safety, to the dam and the water diversion tunnel, and has approached arms and the public for feedback. One question we have, there are no answers as yet to the issue of entrainment. Where when and how the issue will be addressed with the upgrade program. After that, I asked Jeff about the overall attitudes and behaviors of BC Hydro and the regulatory bodies. But first, I start off with this key question. Okay, so on that point, uh, they've agreed to do that study, but they, they planned to upgrade the tunnel and the dam right now, and they're looking for input from the community about what, which of three options they should use to proceed with this, with this work. And yet entrainment was not mentioned in their recent uh, description of this program at a town hall meeting that BC Hydro held. So where are we with entrainment and this planned upgrade? I've never seen such a, um, a big utility 
wander around so much in all my life. You know, they, it's like they have two separate silos. Uh, the one silo would be Dr. Robert Schubach, who is solely focused on the seismic upgrades. The other silo is, and, and, and very much smaller, is within BC Hydro that are concerned to some degree about the environment and how to address it, and also the safety of those people that live uh, below the dam. So there's conflicts involved here. And that's why they came up with the three options. But I, but that's that's all smoke and mirrors because if the head of dam safety, which everybody looks to in the province, says there are issues that must be addressed in order to upgrade um, those safety provisions, then how can we be given options? The option is is for safety, and I think they've they've really confused people to even put it out there for debate. But we we see arms because we have acquired the most knowledge outside of those engineers, biologists within BC Hydro. We see that option one is really the only viable one. And I think that's why they made it number one. And that is that if they shut that tunnel down, when they shut that tunnel down to do the upgrades, they can do that probably between April and the 1st of October. Because history will show that there has never been a flood of any magnitude during that period. But after October, we get into our, our winter storms, late fall and winter storms, and we get into those pineapple expresses. And we have to be able to address that with the concept that if BC Hydro has closed that gate to do an upgrade, that they can get it open again in those winter conditions from October through to the 1st of April. So we're asking for option one with modifications, and that is the river can handle the flows uh, during the spring season from that we need to get the smolts out and get them out this way and stop the entrainment up the, out, up the other end, and we can do that. But we can't do it under the way BC Hydro have drafted it, where they're saying that they won't open the tunnel until December 31st. I mean, that makes no sense at all. And, you know, BC Hydro, somebody should go down there and shake them by the collar because to even have printed that out shows that the person that wrote it doesn't have a concept of what they were talking about. Okay, so I, I just got a couple more questions for you, Jeff. How would you characterize the attitudes and behaviors of BC Hydro throughout your dealings with them over the years? Difficult, extremely difficult, but there was a window. Uh, and I would say it was the Mike Harcourt era of the NDP that had come in in 1991 that said that they were going to develop a white paper on, on uh, water rights in British Columbia and, and start to address it. And BC Hydro's master, you know, obviously the president of BC Hydro, chairman of BC Hydro have to be listening to them. And so there was an attitude there that developed. And there was some key people um, that BC Hydro had in their environmental division that have been given a, a considerable amount of, of latitude to move forward here. And interestingly enough, one of the chaps back there that seemed to be more enlightened was a the manager, BC Hydro's manager at Bridge River, who became a VP of operations. And his name was Chris O'Reilly, who now interestingly enough is the head of BC Hydro. And he he supported his environmental department, and they had they they had some pretty bright lights in there. 
And it seems like they've lost their way because right now, dealing with BC Hydro, they just, they, they, they the same attitude is not there. And, and I won't say it's a malicious attitude. It just, they seem to be inexperienced with the issues they got before them. And I'm, I'm shocked to find this. So same question regarding DFO. How would you, how would you, uh, characterize the attitudes and behaviors of BC Hydro throughout your dealings with them? Uncaring in the 60s, no concept that the small streams and rivers in the lower mainland may be their last chance for sockeye and some of these endangered species now that were cut off at Big Bar and other issues in the interior, and they totally disregarded them. And now they 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 should be realizing this might be their only hope. And they've DFO is a hidebound government division that seems to be focused with satisfying their meeting heads in Ottawa. And I totally, totally support the First Nations who have now come out, expressed by Alex Morton the other day, is that we need a, a West Coast division of the DFO with uh, key directorships of, of First Nations sitting on that board. And we need autonomy on the West Coast, not complete autonomy, but we need more autonomy on the West Coast in order to address these issues. They won't be addressed by the bureaucrats in Ottawa. And this has been proven over and over and over again. Uh, one thing we forgot to mention, Jeff, regarding the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and uh, their close relationship with uh, industry when it comes to making decisions that affect fish. That goes back 100 years, more than 100 years to 1903 with the Coquitlam Dam. In 2010, something you discovered something very disturbing about the DFO's allowance, process of allowing BC Hydro to continue to, to um, violate the Fisheries Act. Can you tell us about that and where, where that's going? Yes, really. It started, you know, like, like I said, I'd been pushing for entrainment. 1998, pushed time and again for entrainment. The words came up. And I thought they were just swept under the carpet. Uh, I had got no traction at all. Then in 2009, biologist, again, James Bruce, very scientific chap, he said, I've been doing a project on the stave and I have some money left over. And he said, I've, I've hired a contract biologist by the name of Margaret Squires to do a little bit, a little uh, entrainment study on the Alouette and that tunnel that you've been asking for for years. Oh, I said, well, it's very interested. I'm quite excited that you're doing this. So, in 2000, finally, you know, a few months later, she produced it. And it was a paper shuffle. She, she looked at flows and the volume of flows in the tunnel and the various issues. And she had made a projection that there could be some entrainment going on up to 30%. But it, it was in November, not in the smolting season. It was in November. And she felt because the highest flows through the tunnel were in November, that's when young fry could possibly get sucked in. So it was a, a very flawed study. But nevertheless, it was published and produced. Must have made BC Hydro very nervous because here was their own report saying that they were in violation of the Fisheries Act. And there was also some issues with when they had to release flows from the dam that they flows would go up. And then as they went down again, there could be some stranding. So the other issue was 
And Jack, you raised this yourself, that when they release water pre-spills um, for flood control, you know, they may go up to 40, 45 cubic meters per second and then back down to three or four. That that ramp down rate, that means as you start to reduce the flows down the river, has to be done at a very slow rate so you don't end up str- stranding fish. And there was some evidence given that they had stranded fish. So they applied to the DFO for what's called a Section 35-2 had harmful and destructive habitat fish. And they were, they were wanting to get a permit that said that they were recognizing that there were impacts to fish by their operation, but they uh, had is a pass. Uh, that means they uh, they won't be prosecuted because they're looking for some resolution for this or some method to to alleviate the impacts. And so this was done very secretly and quietly in 2010, and it was signed by Karina Salami and the DFO. It was signed by the Ministry of Environment. It was signed by BC Hydro. What is interesting is while we were having these meetings and all these these same agencies were sitting at our table that had been party to this agreement, it was kept silent from our committee. And the provision was that in 2014, when the water use plan review period was up, that there was some concept that they would come together and look for how they could mediate or ameliorate this uh, this impact. And it never took place. And then it was moved to 2015 for the water use plan review, 2017, 2021, and then back to now 2019. And we've heard the other day that they want to open up and continue now 221. So this has been bouncing back and forth, up and down. In the meantime, this is what's given them an umbrella from charges against the Fisheries Act, a totally dysfunctional system that DFO has allowed to go on here. Okay, Jeff, that's great. Now, just two more questions, eh? Now, you mentioned the Ministry of the Environment, you know, that signed on to this this deal where they get an exemption from the FISH Act. How would you characterize the MOE's attitudes and behavior over the same period? It's an interesting question. There's always been a, a conflict at, at our group's table between the MOE and the DFO because these were considered in the early days kokanee. And it was a mom and pop fishery in the uh, the kids in the Alouette Reservoir slash lake to go up and fish for kokanee. And that was under provincial jurisdiction. So when these issues came up and it was finally determined from genomic investigations that they were sockeye, I think it caught both the DFO and the MOE kind of facing each other, like wondering who really did have the jurisdiction here. I I think clearly it is the DFO, but the fact that they called them in to sign that in 2010, that Section 35 had, shows that MOE don't want to give up the jurisdiction on this fish either, which were are being impacted. So I would say the the MOE are just as culpable. And of course, the Water Rights Act, now under uh, Forest Lands Natural Resources Operations Program, which is the division now the water rights branch is in, they, they are very much a government's servant, but they do have legal responsibilities. And certainly uh, that's been one of the biggest disgraces in the way that has been operated over the years going back 
to when it was first formed in 1909 because they never had, you know, it wasn't maybe malicious. They just didn't have the personnel to go out in the field and monitor these water licenses. And they're still not doing it, which means that once you get a license for water, it's 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 pretty well a given that you're going to be your own uh, monitor, um, that you stay within the limits. And BC Hydro have shown time and again in the past that they didn't do that. Okay, last question. We'll wrap it up here. Uh, what, is, what, in your opinion, is the impact on Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows, and First Nations over the years of this issue of salmon being lost from the Alouette water system? Well, first, you know, I, I would like to say that collectively, City of Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge, you know, the people have shown great heart for the issue. Arms always feels that our community supports what we try to do. I think they've become, City of Maple Ridge have, come, uh, have become lost, unfortunately, just recently in wanting to develop a residential uh, subdivision on the floodplain of the Alouette, which will affect the salmon. So I give them a, a, a strong black mark for that. But the people themselves are very concerned with the our, our West Coast icon, uh, salmon, and the fact that our, our crest is, you know, uh, peaks of gold, rivers of plenty, you know. It's, it's what Maple Ridge, you know, has always been, a, a very environmentally conscious community, and, and we feel that support there. And certainly Carl Dirksen, as I mentioned, uh, was a great force in helping the, the WAP get going. So ARMS, you know, has a, a, a synergy between our community, ourselves, and the salmon. And we're, we're just the flow through. Okay, actually, I'm just going to ask you one more thing, just to back up a little bit. One of the, con- one of the conditions that BC Hydro set in their consideration of a fish ladder was that a significant quote-unquote number of sockeye salmon would have to return to ALCO to make the uh, project feasible. And in 2020, after years of not seeing many salmon come back, 85 came back. Dr. Marvin Rosenall said that's a really significant number. What? How is it significant? What does it mean? Yeah, it's a significant number. It's uh, almost a, um, a scientific conundrum because we've had the lowest runs of sockeye in history in the Fraser River, especially in the interior. And in the face of that, we've had a higher return in the Alouette. I, I would say that uh, clearly this is something to be very concerned with because this is indicating to me that a lot of the sockeye fish are, are getting caught in the bycatch. A bycatch means so when the nets are set out to catch fish and you want to save a specific species like the alouette run, it's nearly impossible to do that. But the fact that the sockeye runs were so endangered that there was no commercial fishing going on might have been the reason that we got this this good return in the alouette. So that's something we have to address too, and that is both the sockeye in uh, the Sunshine Coast and the cultists are failing sockeye runs because it is felt the the bycatch hasn't been able to protect them. And that's a question that I, I have no idea how we're going to address on the Alouette. Now, I may have strayed from your question, but it, it's a statement that has to be made. Yeah, okay, you did stray for it a bit. I mean, Rosenall said that 85 sockeye return means that uh, several thousand could be reintroduced to the lake. 
Uh, wanted you to talk about that. Well, it's a, you know, that's a hypothetical position. It's it's a reasonable one. If we got 85, he's doing a, the mathematical model again. If we got 85 every year and we stopped in treatment, then he sees the possibility of bringing back a wild stock is as being viable. You know, he has, he has simplified it by not bringing in the commercial catch impact which I complexed it with, and I would like to believe he is right. We actually had a higher return in 2010 than last year. Uh, we had 110 return then. So it is known that sockeye also go through a, a four-year cycle. So um, next year, we might have one of the lowest returns. Okay, Jeff, we're going to wrap it up now, I think, unless there's anything else that you forgot to say and want to say. No, I would, I would like to thank both you and Chris for your efforts here. I, I know there's a heck of a lot of work that's gone on in the background to pull this together. And to, at my age of 85, you know, my memory isn't going to last forever. I much, I much appreciate getting this recorded. I don't know where it will go in terms of um, getting any traction, but at least you've given me the opportunity to frame it up and and, and give some historical concepts of what we have lost and what is now so fragile and hanging on the edge of being not only, you know, partly lost, but gone forever. So I'm, I'm just hoping younger people will come forward and, and build on the, on the platform that ARMS and others, yourself, Jack, you've worked on this for years too. So we can only hope that some people will catch the uh the vision here and push this ball further up the hill yeah i'm sure they will jeff and thank you very much christian's going to just say something to you yeah i'd like to thank you jeff for the tremendous amount of recall you've done on this on this topic and being so generous with with your time on it it really is important that patterns through time get recorded of the actors you know to see if they're acting in good faith uh, so that we can hold them, continue to hold them to account over time. You know, I'm a, I'm a former deckhand from a troller. For a couple of years, my personal livelihood depended on, on salmon. And there no longer is much of a salmon industry on this coast because of the lack of importance to uh, the successors of BC Hydro and the government to protect these stocks. And as a consequence, you know, both First Nations and settlers here no longer really have access to what was an incredibly important food source, cultural source of the culture and a society. And so your, your work in this, this file has been really critical. And the fact that you remember most of it is, is pretty remarkable. So, yeah, just a really big thank you. Thanks, Chris. So this wraps up our 100 Years War on Alouette Salmon the series, except for one postscript, dealing with the 2010 exemption from prosecution granted to BC Hydro under the Fisheries Act, Section 35.2 and 32, known as HADS, Habitat Alteration, Destruction, or Disturbance. In 2010, DFO granted BC Hydro an exemption from that legislation in other words, a license to kill fish. It remains in effect today. In 2020, ARMS filed a Freedom of Information request for details about that exemption. The report has been received. 
And in a future episode, we plan to go through it in conversation with Jeff Clayton. concludes this episode of SeedPod. SeedPod is brought to you by the Seed Center Society, a registered charity dedicated to community education on environment and development. Our mission is to connect people to community and foster an understanding of sustainable living so that all living beings can thrive. SeedPod is supported by our listeners, people like you, who want to make our communities more resilient. You can sign up as a patron on our Patreon site for just a few dollars per month. Find us at patreon.com slash seedpod. You'll find the Seed Center website at www.seedcenter.com. Check out the programs at our neighborhood house and community gardens. Our featured program for this episode is our Wednesday community discussions. Each Wednesday morning from 10 a.m. to 12 noon, we provide a forum for community members to speak their minds and learn about the world around them. The topics are chosen by the people in attendance. We also provide strong coffee and local refreshments. There's no cost to participate, although donations are always graciously accepted. This episode was hosted by Jack Amberley and me, Christian Cowley. I also recorded and edited the sessions. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. So long, and remember that a connected community is a resilient community.